Well, good morning again. Turn to the book of First John, and we'll plan to pick up where we left off last week. First John, we'll, uh, let's look at chapter 2, we'll look at verses 18 through verse 3 of chapter 3. And read along with me. Again, you know, we're, we're going to move through a lot of passages this morning. And so keep your finger, your bookmark in First John. It's one of the advantages of having a paper Bible with you. I mean, I guess some people are much faster on their phones than I am. But um, we're going to move to a lot of passages this morning. So get your finger ready to turn pages or to scroll your screen or however that might work. But First uh, John chapter 2, verse 18 it's important to read along. You know, Noah made the point last week, and, and I reiterate it, that it's important to, to read along as you listen, as you hear the word preached, as you hear it read aloud, to read along for yourself, because it helps you to better comprehend what the author of Scripture, what the Holy Spirit is telling us when you can see it and hear it at the same time. So verse 18, chapter 2, 1 John. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. And from this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father." This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We will know that when he appears... We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Let's pray. Father, as we delve into your word this morning, again, we thank you that we can be here, that we can sing your praises, that we can worship, and we pray that you'd help us to worship in spirit and in truth, that you would encourage our hearts with your word, that you would help us to hear it gladly, to put it in our hearts and in our minds, and then to remember it and to apply it to our lives, to our walk of life. 
as we practice it this week. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So last time, last Sunday, we reviewed the contrast between Christians and non-Christians that John gives us here in the second half of chapter 2, and we noted that in one sense, Christianity can be summed up by a person's doctrine of Christ and also by their obedience to Christ. Those two things, doctrine, what we believe, obedience, our practice of life. These are evidences of being a true Christian based on what we believe. Again, our doctrine and our practice of obedience. We also began then to explore a transition of ideas starting in uh, verse 29 of chapter 2, that Christians are not only described by what they believe and, 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 and what they do, but also by who they are in Christ. And as we continue into verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 today, we'll see that John zeroes in more precisely on this idea of who believers are in Christ. Here, John gives us a glorious summation of who Christians are based on what God has done, based on who he is. So do you see the difference? We can assess who Christians are based on our doctrine and our our subsequent practice of Christian life, and those are vital considerations. They're very important. They prove out who we are as we live, um, but they only go so far. They're only one side of the coin. The other side of the coin, the more complete way of seeing who we are is based on what God has done to us, what he's done for us. And so verse 29 introduced that idea. We looked at it last week. John says, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So this idea is also in the gospel of John, chapter 3, about being born of the Spirit, about being born again. And this is where John drives us again in 1 John, chapter 3, these first couple verses of this chapter. In fact, he already hinted at it in chapter 2, verse 25. If you glance there real quickly, 1 John 2, 25, this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. So John had already hinted at it. And then in verse 29, he introduces this idea that Christians have been born of him. So John's making something of a transition in statements, transition in ideas. He addressed Christian doctrine and practice, and now he introduces this glorious idea of being born of God. Now, regarding verse 29 of chapter 2, Martin Lloyd-Jones said the following, but it applies equally well to verse 1, since we see this idea of Christians being God's children in both verses, and he said this, quote, Righteousness, then, is the thing that is essential to fellowship with God. In other words, the great stress of this epistle from beginning to end is the ethical stress. John is anxious that, that they see that these conditions must be observed. The great blessings come to us freely in Christ, but if we want to enjoy and continue enjoying them, then we must walk in the righteous manner. And that is the argument until the end of verse 28 of the second chapter. But here in verse 29, we come to one of those points of transitions. Transition, you see the connection. John takes it up like this. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does righteousness is born of him. Now that is a new key. In other words, says John, I would have you realize that as a result of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not only in fellowship with God, you have also become children of God. You are born of God. You're not only in a new relationship in an external manner, there is a vital internal relationship. It is not merely that you are having communion and association with God, but that you are in a vital union with him. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. 
and this vital thing has happened to you. Now that is the thing that occupies our attention in, in this epistle until we reach the, the first verse of the fourth chapter. That is the whole theme, especially of this third chapter and leading on into the fourth. The fact that we are thus born of God and in this organic internal relationship to him. End quote. That was Lloyd-Jones. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 and read along. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. So if we look at that first half of verse 1, let's consider that for a few minutes. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Remember that in this letter, John has frequently called his, his readers children and little ones, and our sense so far is that they are John's spiritual children. And that's true, but it's not that simple. Sure, they're looking to him, to John, for leadership and for teaching, but now he blows them out of the water, really, by calling them and himself children of God. But it's not simple friendship with God. It's not just being God's neighbor or being in a peace treaty with God. This is being a child of God. Now, we all understand the difference. If your friend or your neighbor comes to you and asks a favor, you'll consider it, and you'll probably do what you can to accommodate them, at least if you have a good relationship with them. But if your child comes to you, parents, or kids, listen to me, kids. I see you, Sarah. <laughs> kids, if your parent or your brother or sister comes to you, we all understand there's a deeper and profoundly greater significance to their request or their need. It's because of the family relationship that we share with them. A parent will typically do everything they can to meet the need of the child. A child should be doing everything they can to obey the parent. The whole dynamic of the relationship is different. It's not just being friends or acquaintances or neighbors or in some political or business obligation. We have an old saying, blood is thicker than water. It means that family is held in a vastly higher regard, a deeper love, a deeper commitment than any other relationship that we might have. So, get ready to get your page-turning finger ready. Uh, let's look at a few passages that will give us sort of a real jet view, quick summary of God and his people. Turn to Leviticus, chapter 26, third book in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 26. And we're going to start at verse 11, read a couple of verses there. We're going to take these moments to turn to these pages with that idea that it helps to read it as well as hear it together. Leviticus 26, God says this, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Then turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Towards the end of the Old Testament, 
Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, then Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. And we're going to start at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And then a few pages later, Ezekiel, turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. The idea we're kind of looking at in these passages is that I will be their God and they will be my people. So Ezekiel chapter 37, starting at verse 24. Now Ezekiel mentions David, and you've got to remember David's already long dead when this is written. Ezekiel 37, starting at verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make them a, cov a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. And then finally, turn to Revelation chapter 21. <clears throat> Last book of the Bible, of course. Revelation chapter 21, <clears throat> starting at verse 1. John in his vision says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea... The sea represented chaos and danger and death to the Old Testament Jews. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So, turn back to 1 John. In all these passages that we've just looked at, we see the idea, I will be their God and they will be my people. God has chosen a people for himself. He has chosen a people for redemption in Christ. These are essentially statements about God's family. And really, it, it's written in blood, since it's the blood of Jesus that washes away sin. John even talks about that in verse 7 of chapter 1 here. So this is permanent. It's unalterable. 
Now, admittedly, though, some of us may be tempted to take this with a grain of salt. Some of us in this room have reasons to distrust family or to beware of the idea of family. Some of us have been hurt by family, wounded by family, forsaken by family, betrayed, neglected, abused, dishonored, forgotten by family. And this is not to say that the church is perfect in its walk here on earth. It's not. All of us are sinners. We all have baggage. We all, at times, hurt other people. But we need to be careful not to judge the family that God has made for himself by a broken example, by a sinful example. In other words, be careful not to judge God and his adoption or his begetting of his people, the church, by the broken and sinful examples of broken and sinful earthly people and families. Recall in verse 5 of chapter 1, glance at it quickly there, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, second half of the verse, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Absolutely no darkness in God. In other words, he's perfect, he's sinless. And remember that the perfection of God in that verse is the perfection of Father and Son. God the Father, God the Son. In the beginning of chapter 1, John has talked to us about the, the co-eternality of, of Father and Son. That God the Son was with God the Father eternally. So the perfection of God is the perfection of the Son. And when he begets his children, it's in perfection. In perfection, not imperfection. So don't judge the real and the holy by a cheap and broken imitation. Don't judge the pearl of great price by a cheap drugstore string of imitation pearls. Don't judge that brand new Rolls Royce on the basis of a broken down old Toyota. Don't deny life because you have first experienced death. Remember that God loved his people so much that he gave his son so that we might be made his children. We can't even imagine or quantify the pain the humiliation that God the Father and Son experienced in their separation from each other on the cross. The righteous wrath of the Father poured on the Son for the sake of you, his child. And therein is God's grace and mercy to inflict upon himself the hell of his righteous and wrathful judgment of sin so that you might be made his child, so that you may be adopted into his family. Jesus paid the price that we never could. So it's not about how we've been betrayed by other people. It's about God making the statement, I will be their God and they will be my people, and then putting his plan to action to make it so. It's about God saving his people from their sin, saving you from your sin and me from my sin. We're all sinners. We all deserve hell. But God, through Christ, mercifully makes us his children. And so in verse 29, John told us that Christians are born of him. And we recall that the Greek word, therefore, born, is the verb gegenitai, which means to beget or to bring forth. So our being in, relationship, being in relationship with God is not through anything we've done. It's because we've been born of him, been begotten of God. God causes us to be his children in Christ, the Father's love given to us so that we should be called, and not just called or named, but actually be ESV says, and so we are. The NASB says, and such we are, that we are God's children. So there's something to think about in verse 1 of chapter 3. 
called God's children and such we are. Now look back at the beginning of that verse, verse 1 of chapter 3. See what kind of love, or see how great a love, depending on the version you might be looking at. See what kind of love this is. And the Greek word for see there means to stare at or to discern clearly. It's something to be studied, to be contemplated. It's not something to glance at in a casual manner. Consider what it took for God to beget Christians as his children. Remember that God the Father sent God the Son to be our advocate, our propitiation, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. And what qualified Jesus to be the advocate for Christians? What qualified him to be the propitiation or essentially the, the payment for our sin? Christ's perfect obedience in his life on earth qualifies him to be that acceptable payment for our sin. In other words, Christ's active obedience, living a perfect life that we couldn't, coupled with his passive obedience, willingly receiving God's wrath on the cross, qualified him to be the propitiation for our sin and therefore our advocate, really our attorney before the throne of God. So thinking about that helps us to stare at or to, to discern clearly just what kind of love this is. On his cross, Jesus traded his righteousness for our sin. He received the Father's wrath so that we would receive the Father's mercy. What kind of love does God love his children with? Essentially, in his love, he traded his son, Jesus, for us so that we might be made his children. Now, as we contemplate this idea of being God's children, having been brought forth or begotten by God himself, we can also remember that the New Testament calls Christian believers the body of Christ. Now, that term body is really a term of great intimacy. When we speak of our own bodies, it's often in the context of the care that we take for the benefit or for the, for the respect of our own bodies. We exercise, we watch our weight so that our bodies might be healthy. We groom ourselves, dress ourselves, we pay, pay attention to style and fashion in order to meet certain needs or expectations. For example, we dress in a certain way because of the requirements of our job or our sports or our hobbies. I hope he's wearing a helmet. <laughs> Generally, those uniforms or dress codes meet certain needs that our bodies have. A football player wears a helmet, wears pads, why? To protect his body. A ballerina wears special shoes. Why? Why does she wear special shoes? So she can stand on point. Welders, firefighters wear gloves, fire-resistant clothing to protect their bodies. There are medicines or creams that we apply to our bodies. Makeup to freshen our appearance. Medicines, vitamins, nutritional supplements that help our bodies. We take great interest in the needs of our bodies. We have great respect for our bodies. Likewise, consider a bride as she prepares herself on her wedding day. She takes great care to present herself in a beautiful way, a special way, an unforgettable way to her groom. Everyone at the wedding holds the bride in the highest of honor and understands that she's the most beautiful lady there that day. Everyone stands as she walks down the aisle. So we understand the great care and the great honor that we give our own bodies. Then 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you don't need to turn there. We're just going to look at it real quickly. Paul uses the metaphor of the human body to describe the various roles in the church. Roles, responsibilities, jobs in the church. Everybody can play a role. Everybody has a different ability or gift. 
And so the, each individual in the church has that ability to serve the church. And then in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Here's where you get your finger ready again. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 1, starting at the end of verse 4. We're going we're gonna to jump through most of Ephesians here real quickly. Starting at verse 4, chapter 1, towards the end of that verse, he says, In love he, God the Father, predestined us to adoption as sons, there's the idea of becoming God's children, through Jesus Christ, to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And then jumping to verse 22 of that chapter, verse 22 of chapter 1. And he, the Father, put all things in subjection under his, Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Turn to chapter 4 of Ephesians a little bit later. uh, Look at uh, verse 4 of chapter 4. Paul encourages the church in the idea of unity and, 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 with each other in this chapter. And in verse 4, he starts to say, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He builds on this a few verses later. Look at verse 15 of chapter 4. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted together and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper work of each individual part, causes growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And then Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is instructing husbands on how to love their wives, and he does it by describing the context of loving our bodies and of Christ loving the church. So look at verse 28 of chapter 5, Ephesians 5, 28. Paul writes this, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. We've just talked about that idea. Just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then he says this, This mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So in these verses, Paul is given this intimate idea that the church is so closely related to Christ that we are called his body. And in his conclusion here, in addition to instructing husbands, Paul is clearly speaking of the mystical union of Christ and the church, that we are his body, that he nourishes us and cares for us because we are members of his body. So we see that idea of union of man and bride, but Paul's emphasis is on the union between Jesus and his body. And Paul's metaphor here, the union between Christ and his bride, the church. So turn to Romans chapter 8. We have some other passages to look at to help us ponder this a little bit further. To ponder the love of God in Christ for his church. Romans chapter 8. Starting at verse 14, 
Paul writes to the Roman church, he says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are, look at it, sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 11. writer says this, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, the church, brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, Likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like, who? Like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Here's a verse in Proverbs. You don't need to turn to this one. It's just one verse. Proverbs 18.24. You can write it down if you're taking notes. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions, in other words, a man with many friends, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than what? Than a brother. Who is the friend who sticks closer than a brother? It's Jesus Christ. Turn to this one, though. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 46. And Jesus is speaking to the crowds here, it says. Matthew 12, 46. While he was still speaking to the crowds, His mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples. Remember, he says he's speaking to the crowds. It's not just the 12 disciples. It's a large group there. And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So as we look at these various portions of Scripture and also consider what the Apostle has told us here in 1 John, and you can turn back to 1 John. As we look at these, we begin to to discern more clearly what amazing love the Father has bestowed on us. He has begotten us as his children. He has made us the body of Christ. And in all of this, he's caused us to be brothers and sisters of Jesus in some mysterious way, heirs with him, heirs heirs with Christ. Are you beginning to see more deeply 
what kind of love the Father has given to us. How great a love is this that we should be called children of God? Now, as we move along, we see in the second half of verse 1 a logical conclusion to what we saw uh, in, the, in, in the second half of verse 29 of chapter 2 and in this first half of verse 1. In 29, he told us that God has begotten his children, that he's made us believers, uh, Christian believers his own. And then in the first half of 1, he says he accomplished it through this amazing, gracious love. But then in the second half of verse 1 of chapter 3, he says the reason the world doesn't know us doesn't know Christian believers. What's it say there? For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. It doesn't know us because it didn't know him. The world does not know God. The world does not recognize Jesus for who he is. We've already seen that it's abundantly clear from a practical aspect in verses 15 through 17 of chapter 2 and from a doctrinal aspect in verses 18 through 26 of chapter 2, that the world does not know God or obey him. From that practical aspect in 15 through 17 of chapter 2, uh, John explained that the love for the world and its things precludes, in other words, eliminates love for God, and that those things of the world, in other words, the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, are not from God, but they're passing away along with the rest of the world. And from that doctrinal aspect, we can boil it down to verses 22 and 23. John tells us that liars deny that Jesus is the Christ and that their denial of father and son is what makes them antichrist and that because they have denied the son Jesus, they do not have the father either. So, as a conclusion here, in, the, in this second half of verse 1 of chapter 3, we see that it's no surprise. If the world does not know God, does not know Jesus, how in the world could it know us believers in Jesus Christ as God's children turn to the gospel according to John chapter 15 John 15 um, starting at verse 18 this again is, is part of the night before Jesus is crucified we spent some time there last week I know Noah took us there I think last week in Sunday school John 15 starting at verse 18 we'll, we'll look through the first part of verse 4 of 16 Jesus says this to his disciples on the night before he's crucified this is part of what he says he says if the world hates you you know that it has hated me before it hated you if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would, ha would not have sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause." When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you, so that you 
may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me, but these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And I think John obviously did remember these things that Jesus had said. Jesus' words must have comforted him on that night so many years earlier. And now John writes basically the same thing to the church to encourage those who trust Christ, those who know him as Lord. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know him. So look again at 1 John chapter 3 as we move into verse 2. John's been explaining these things of Christ and his church, and he seems to come, I think, here to a moment of climax. Jim Boyce says, near rhapsody, as John writes. As John writes here in verse 2, he seems ecstatic, full of praise and wonder and hope as he reiterates and deepens this idea of what it means for us to be God's children. Notice the personal pronouns he uses there in verses 1 and 2. He uses the pronouns us and we. As John proclaims the glory of this idea of being God's children, he includes himself in the group that he's writing to. It's not just a message for his readers, it's also a message for himself as well. It applies to all Christian believers, to all the children of God. And this verse is perhaps one of the most comforting in all of Scripture. It's a verse that has the idea of fulfillment, of consummation, of completion, and of rest. And it builds on that idea that we saw in verse 28 of chapter 2 of having confidence at Christ's coming again. But John combines that idea of Christ coming again with the idea of being God's child. And you can tell that this just blows him out of the water. It's that idea, last week we talked about the idea that that John, as a, as a carver or a sculptor, he's not just using a hammer or chisel here. He's blowing the side off that mountain, right, Kevin? So that we can see the faces of Mount Rushmore. How'd they, how'd they make that sculpture on Mount Rushmore? They used dynamite and blew the face off the mountain. And to me, that's kind of the idea here that John is in such ecstatic state as you write this. We are now already God's children, but we're going to be something even more. We don't even understand yet what it is. It hasn't appeared. We don't see it. We don't understand it. Look at what it says there. And it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. But this is what we do know. Look at it again. He says, beloved, at the beginning of verse 2, beloved, now we are children of God. That's our present reality. We are now, currently, at this time, God's children. And even though what we will be has not yet appeared, It's not yet visible to us. He says this. He follows on. He says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We know that when Christ comes again, we'll be like him. We'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. I want to pause for one moment. and I want to mention what this does not mean. John's not saying that when Jesus appears that we will become God. He's not saying that we will become part of God. We will not be junior gods. We will not be assistant gods or little mini-me gods. We are creatures. We will never be part of the creator. We are not eternal. We will never become the eternal one. We will never be God. 
But when we Christians see Christ someday, we will see him very clearly, and that will allow us, it will cause us in some mysterious way to be like him. But that's then. What about now? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're also going to look at chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. So turn there. 1 Corinthians 13. It's the famous love chapter. We're going to look at the end of that chapter, starting at verse 9. 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 9. Paul writes this. He says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And then he uses a picture here. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. And then flip to the 15th, 15th chapter there, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 42. Paul says this, so also, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable, imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is from earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have been born the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will put on the imperishable and this mortal will put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You can turn back to 1 John. So for now, we see dimly. For, no, for now, we don't fully understand the imperishable. We don't comprehend immortality yet. But as we consider what Paul tells us here and what John tells us in verse 2 of chapter 3 in 1 John, we know that we have the promise of being like Christ, even though we don't yet fully understand the reality of that. Now, we have already understood these doctrinal things of who Jesus is 
He is God the Son, and by knowing him, we also know the Father. We have understood the practical aspects of this, that we strive to live righteously, although we still at times sin. We look to Christ, not to the things of the world, to provide our fulfillment, our salvation. But even in that which we are already, there is something more, something great and grand and glorious waiting for us at Christ's return. There is still some mystery that we don't see or know yet. When Christ comes, we will not shrink back from him in shame and fear because of the guilt of sin. Rather, we will run to him with open arms, crying what? Crying, Abba, Father, and we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The sin of this world, the fear, the doubt, the unbelief, the frustration, the anxiety, the failure that we experience, even as God's children in this present world, it's going to drop away, melt away, wash away, evaporate like the morning mist. We will no longer see through a glass darkly or a mirror dimly. We will see Christ. We'll see him. We will see Christ. There will be no doubt, no fear, no worry. All will be complete in him, through him. We will be with God. We will be with him. We will, in some great and grand and mysterious way, be like him. The devil told Eve that she could be like God by turning from God, by not believing God, by turning to the world, worshiping the creation, having an idol, eating the apple. But the truth is, we are restored to God. We will be with him because the Father has made us his children through Christ, and we will see Christ for who he is, and we will be like him. Now, we often hear people say, I find God in my own way. Or there are many ways to God. All roads lead to God. The road, the road to Alliance does not lead to Pennsylvania. So those things, I find my own God, there are many ways to God, all roads, leads to, all roads lead to God. That's a lie from the pit of hell. John has argued elegantly throughout chapter 2 that we know God only through Jesus Christ. And here, in this interlude of verses 29 of chapter 2 on through verse 3 of chapter 3, he presents this glorious truth. He revels in the fact. He shares this thrilling truth that God has begotten his people in Christ, that God has adopted us, made us his children, caused us to be brothers and sisters to Jesus, who is God the Son, made us even, honored us by naming Christians, naming the church as the body of Christ. John has given us a glimpse of who we are now, God's children, and what we will yet be. We will be like Christ. Think of the profound love and care of God for us in that fact. It's no wonder we can't comprehend it yet. Oh, the glory that awaits us, children of God, brothers and sisters to Jesus Christ. Praise his name. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you praising your name, praising Jesus, thanking you for your Holy Spirit amongst us, that you have shown us the truth of your word, that you have shown us Christ, that you have made us your own. We think of David thinking out, seeking out Mephibosheth and making him a member, really, of his own family. That's what you've done for us. Help us to remember it, to, to 
be joyful in it. To realize that in that truth, all the fear, all the trouble, all the anxiety drops away because someday we'll be with him and we will be like him. Thank you for it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.